This evening, I've been asked to speak about distinguishing the Buddha Dharma, Buddhist teachings, from Asian culture or Tibetan culture. This is a very important question to ask, particularly if we are working to benefit others. For instance, we ourselves might be fascinated with Tibetan culture or Asian culture in general and like it. But if we want to help others and teach them about the Buddhist teachings, it would be helpful for them. I think that's really the question, isn't it? And just as we may or may not like these aspects of Tibetan culture, similarly there are going to be others that we try to help that may or may not like it as well. So we need to be flexible in terms of working with others, helping others. Do we encourage them to light butter lamps and string prayer flags, this sort of a thing? Or is that something that would just cause them to turn away from Buddhism, to be turned off? So there are two considerations here. Our own purposes and benefit and the purposes and aims of others. Now, one has to ask a very fundamental question here. Can you have Buddhist teachings without a cultural context? In other words, can the teachings exist by themselves out of a context, which is similar to the question of can anything exist outside of a context? Or if we want to use the terminology that we find in the voidness teachings, then can we establish something as a Buddhist teachings just from its own side, or is it established dependently on a context? And, of course, from an analysis of voidness that we find in Buddhism, we can't establish a Buddhist teaching outside of a context. So, that fits in with the general principle that we know that Buddha taught with skillful methods, he taught various people, various students, disciples, in terms of what they could understand. And that was all that Buddha did in terms of teaching others. He taught others in terms of consideration of others. In other words, by considering others, Buddha taught. If you consider others, others live in a society with a culture with basic ideas, don't they? And so, Buddha taught to an Indian audience. If we look just in terms of the historical Buddha, if we think in a larger Mahayana term, then Buddha taught countless universes and countless beings in all sorts of different cultures. But still, in each of the Buddha fields, in each of these universes, there's a culture. So, we look at the teachings that have been written down that are available to us and we find general themes that are found in all of Indian, all is a very large word, but in practically all Indian systems of philosophy and Indian thought. And so, karma, rebirth, the whole idea of repeated rebirth due to the influence of ignorance or unawareness of reality and the influence of karma that's built up on the basis of that unawareness, ignorance, and the path of listening to teachings from a spiritual teacher, thinking about them, meditating on them, in order to gain liberation from this ignorance and the uh, samsaric rebirth. In other words, liberation comes from understanding reality and purifying away karma. All of that we find in common in so many different Indian systems. And teachings on love and compassion that's held in common with Indian systems. All the methods for attaining concentration is in common. Even the teachings on how to attain shamatha and vipassana, which sometimes we think are just so Buddhist. They're not. You find that in other systems as well. Shamatha being a Filled and settled state of mind, the Pashma being an exceptionally perceptive state of mind, this we find in other Indian systems. And Buddha modeled his monastic community on the Jain 
community that was there already. So having the bi-monthly meeting of the monks and uh, the whole concept of refuge and so on. They can have in Jainism as well. That came before Buddhism. And certainly making offerings and all of that with all the different beings from the different realms, the hell creatures and the ghosts and the gods and all of that. That certainly you find in all the Indian systems. And Mount Meru and the continents, all of that's there as well in these other Indian systems. So if we took all of that away, saying that we can do without the Indian cultural context, what would we have left? Very interesting question. Well, we'll come back to that question. When we look at how Buddhism went from India, and Buddhism is clearly taught in the context of Indian culture, when we see how it went to other Asian cultures, we find all these aspects that we mentioned, ethical discipline, etc., all of these things were retained. The kept them, the Chinese kept them, Japanese kept them, and Southeast Asia kept them. So, they did, of course, in each of these countries, add a little bit to these basic elements that help to make the Buddhist teachings a little bit more comfortable for people in their culture. And so these things that were added, like what I mentioned before, Tibetan prayer flags, which basically was coming from the earlier tradition in Tibet Bon. Well, we could argue that this is not so essential, but we follow that in Western Buddhism, so-called Western Buddhism. So we have superficial aspects. I think we need to differentiate superficial aspects of how Buddhism is presented in a culture from the more fundamental Indian aspects. And then is there something, even if you took away the Indian aspects, that characterize something as a Buddhist teaching? I think there's three levels here. Okay, so Tibetans, since we are, most of us are receiving Buddhist teachings through a Tibetan medium, weren't able to follow some of the Indian customs because of what they had available in Tibet. It's not the same as what they have available in India. And here I'm thinking in terms of offerings. Well, Tibetans didn't have all the assortment of flowers. For example, so they use this dry thing that comes from a tree. They call that a flower. It's maybe seen as sort of like a paper type of white seed. So do we have to use those? No. Obviously not. That's like butter lamps. In India probably they also had uh, butter lamps. That I don't know. Do we have to do that? Well, probably not. Can we offer light bolts and turn the electricity on? Why not? It's light. Tibetans in India do, some of them. And they also offer plastic flowers in India with Tibetans because they last longer. Tibetans are very practical. And uh, these uh, paintings, these tankas, well, yes, you had uh, these type of figures on wall paintings in India but the Chinese brocade around it, which the Tibetans obviously took from China, do we need that? No, that's quite superficial, isn't it? Put in a picture frame. And what about music? The Tibetans have different musical instruments. Then in India, they compose their own musical accompaniments to things. And so we could say, do we have to play the Tibetan musical instruments, or could we play or offering a trombone or a trumpet or a saxophone. Would that be acceptable? It's an interesting question, isn't it? But in theory, why not? What is the point? The point of these offerings is to make an offering, to be generous, to develop generosity. The Buddhists from their side don't care if they're hearing a sitar or a Tibetan trumpet or a saxophone. What does it make to them? Certainly nothing. The important thing is that it be respectful and not sound like uh, some silly popular tune. What other things can we think of that change from culture to culture? How about the monastic robes? The Tibetans certainly at least have a different color and different shape from the robes they wear in Southeast Asia. The Chinese have different robes. The Mongolians have different robes. But they all have robes. That's the point. 
if asked about the monks' vows, nuns' vows, it becomes an interesting question, doesn't it? They were taught in all the different countries that Buddhism went to in their various versions of the vows that developed in India and different lines of it went to different countries, but nevertheless they were retained. But do the Tibetans, for example, follow all the vows? Well, you'd have to say there's some vows that seem to be quite irrelevant. Tibetans don't go around barefoot in the village with a begging bowl and all the vows concerning how you beg and keeping your eyes down and so on. Tibetans don't even do that, do they? They have the vows. And so, of course, that becomes a very difficult and delicate question. If you have the vows, does that mean that you have to actually go around and beg? Well, the Tibetans get their food in the monasteries in Tibet from offerings. They didn't go out to collect the offerings. The local people brought the offerings to them. So is that staying within the Vinaya rules? That's hard to say. The Chinese, they said no begging. The monks and nuns have to produce their own food. They have to be farmers. There's no adaptation there. If we look at a monastic institution, is begging just something which is cultural? No. Obviously, the whole setup of the monastic institution was one in which it would be supported by society. So, how do you adjust that to a Western society? Well, you still have the vows about begging. Questions that are very difficult to answer. Should we send all the monks and nuns out here in Germany on the U-Bahn begging with a little bowl or selling a little magazine monks like yourself here in order to get their food every day? That would be a little bit strange, wouldn't it? But it would be begging. But if the society doesn't support the monastic community, how does the monastic community survive? This is quite a difficult question in the West. So is having a monastic tradition just cultural? Well, you have a monastic tradition in our Western Christianity, for example. There's a tradition of giving donations which will support them, but some of these monastics in the West make wine, for example. Well, that wouldn't go over in a Buddhist context. How do you adjust? Question. What can you adjust? How much can you adjust? Other things that were added into Buddhism... A very good example is in Chinese Buddhism, they add filial piety as one of the virtues, one of the positive things, which means the children should take care of the parents. That's emphasized very, very much. And they even have offerings to the ancestors and so on. From a Buddhist point of view, that's quite strange because your deceased parents have taken rebirth. And the Tibetans and the Chinese have the custom of taking more than one wife. And the Tibetans, uh, some of them take more than one husband. How does that fit in with the uh, teachings about inappropriate sexual activity? So they added certain things. Do we need to then take it over in our culture? No. No. Then what about language? A lot of the Tibetan lamas emphasize that we should do our practices in Tibetan. In a recent lecture that Tsongsa Kenzi Rikishu gave here in Berlin, he raised a very interesting uh, question concerning that point. He said, if the Tibetans had to say all their prayers and practices in German, written in Tibetan letters but the German words, without understanding anything of what they're saying, he wonders how many Tibetans would actually do that. <laughs> a very interesting question, isn't it? So, obviously, although some lamas do emphasize doing our practices in Tibetan, we can really question whether or not that is so helpful. Because the Tibetans certainly don't do their practices in Sanskrit, do they? And they don't visualize mantras in the Sanskrit alphabet either. They use the Tibetan alphabet. And they don't even pronounce the mantras the way that they would be pronounced in Sanskrit. Vajra, in Sanskrit, they pronounce Benzo. When it goes from Tibet to Mongolia, the Mongolians pronounce it Oshir. So which one is correct? And when it goes to Chinese, you wouldn't even recognize the words. 
And then the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese characters becomes even more removed. So, these are all important questions. One of the reasons, by the way, that one great Tibetan Lama gave for insisting that people do the practices in Tibetan was that he had students from all over the world. And he said that if everybody was reciting their practices, like Chenrezig Puja, in Tibetan, they could all practice together. If everybody was doing it in their own language, they wouldn't be able to practice together. So that's one reason. But then, by that same logic, all the Tibetans should have done everything in Sanskrit. And the Chinese and the Southeast Asia, everybody should have done it in Sanskrit. And they didn't. I must correct what I said. Because the Southeast Asians, follow Theravada Buddhism, they all recite their sutras and so on in Pali. And it's only very, very recently, within the last, don't quote me on this, 100 years or 150 years or so, that these Pali sutras were ever translated into the local languages, Thai or Burmese or Sri Lankan. So it's a little bit similar to Luther finally saying you know, that you can translate the Bible into German. That's the other thing in Latin. But at the church, for a very long time, everybody did everything in Latin. And it made some sort of unity, didn't it? Even if you didn't understand what anything meant. There are arguments pro and con. There are a lot of things when you start to think about it that one could question, are they just cultural? Think about the way that people sit in meditation. The Indians sit cross-legged, and the Tibetans follow that. Japanese Buddhists sit basically on their knees with their legs behind them. The uh, Thais sit with their legs both going to one side. So can we sit on chairs? Well, maybe for certain practices in Tantra involving working with the subtle energy systems, maybe not. But for ordinary practice, why not? Even the way that prostration is done differs in the different Asian countries. So, one, I think, has to look in these cases to the principle. And the principle behind it is showing respect, for instance, for uh, prostration and sitting in a comfortable position or a standard type of position, not just any old way, so with some discipline for meditating. So, in these examples that I've given, there are certain principles that are there that are followed in a different cultural way in these different countries. So we can have our own cultural way. The monastics wear special robes. Do they have to be exactly like the Tibetan or exactly like the Chinese? Well, maybe not. But they should be special. They should be different from ordinary people's clothes, and everybody should wear the same. So you're not concerned about how pretty you look. And what's the principle behind that? The principle behind that is that you're not involved in commerce and trying to make money, trying to make a profit, and so on. And so you live on what others give you, and whatever is given is accepted. You're satisfied with that. So is there some way to be able to bring that about in our societies? Do we need all this elaborate decoration for a, uh, a Buddhist center, which is done in Tibetan style with a Tibetan altar and these curtains up by the ceiling and the special colors and stuff like that? Do we really need that? Is that cultural? And I would say that yes, that is cultural. We certainly don't find this in a Japanese Buddhist temple. But some people like that. If they like that, why not? Some people might not like that. They'll find it very strange. So, I think perhaps enough of this superficial level of Buddhist trappings, the sort of prayer flags and decoration and what kind of music you offer and all of that. But let's go on to this second level. Although one thing I should add in that, what about all these offerings to spirits? And you find that in India as well. You have a whole array of, it's very difficult to even translate them, Gandharvas and Yakshas and Rakshasas, we call them demons, and cannibal spirits and stuff like that. And we make offerings to them, protect us, don't harm us, like that. Well... 
Trends actually didn't make that up. We had that in India, but uh, the Tibetans just added much, much more. And then Mongolians took everything that the Tibetans had and added even more. Do we need that? No. Yeah, that would be very interesting, doesn't it? Because you had all of these yashas and rakshas and all of these things in general Indian thought. It wasn't just in uh, Buddhism. So now you could say, well, when we come to the West, should we make offerings to elves and goblins and all these sort of beings out of a Tolkien book, the hobbits and stuff like that? Because that's part of our culture as well. The evil witches and stuff like that. Would we do that? Would that be keeping the same principle as what you have in Buddhism? I'm not giving answers here. I'm asking questions. In fact, there are even some translators in the West who translate Tahini's as angels and fairies. So should we have angels and fairies as well in our Buddhism? So one has to think, is there any deeper meaning to uh, all of this? Are we really talking here about harmful forces, I think in the Western we're comfortable with the word forces rather than spirits. That's a difficult question because then it starts talking about evil. Is there evil in the world and we have to combat the evil? And then that gets into the question of the devil and stuff like that. So do we really want Buddhism to go into that direction? Would that fit in with our society, with our culture? Well, that's a difficult question. Most of us would probably feel more comfortable not having that. If Buddhism came into medieval Europe, probably it would have all this stuff to uh, chase away the devil, wouldn't it? But what is skillful methods? One other thing that is very Tibetan that probably we can put in this category of superficial cultural things that if you like, okay, if you don't like, you can do without, would be dormants. These uh, cones made out of barley flour mixed with butter, and all the decorations. I mean, my own teacher, Sir Rinpoche, used to say you can just have a box of cookies instead. You don't need to have all these uh, elaborate dharma offerings. So, let's turn to these general Indian aspects like karma, rebirth, liberation, enlightenment, etc. Can we have Buddhism without that? And I think that that would be much. What would be left? Meditation is something that we find in Indian culture. So do we throw it out just because it's Indian culture? Right. The form in which we do meditation could be slightly different in terms of, let's say, posture. But the method itself is something which obviously is a very integral part of the path. We look at the boundary which is set. We find this in the Tibetan teachings, the boundary between what is Dharma and what is not. And what is Dharma or not is if you're aiming for, you find this in the long run, future lives and beyond, benefiting future lives and beyond. It's just for this lifetime, it's not Dharma. Very clear in the teachings. Then you have the three levels of aim, of motivation, for improving future rebirths, getting liberation from rebirth, and gaining enlightenment so you can help everybody else get free of rebirth. And there's rebirth. Can you do without that in Buddhism? I would argue no. But improving future lives, you find that in and rebirth, you find that in a modified form in Christianity as well. Western religions go to heaven or go to hell. That's rebirth. Isn't it? And in Indian systems where you have beginningless rebirth, cycles and so on, you have liberation from that. So just to aim to improve future lives or to gain liberation... That stuff in itself doesn't make it Buddhist. So, just to improve future rebirths is not an ultimate aim, you say in Buddhism, but it is just to help us be able to continue on the path. To have the circumstances that are the most conducive to continuing on the path. So, okay, that aspect makes it something which can be included in Buddhism comfortably. But what Buddha said was to gain liberation. Although in these other Indian schools they talk about liberation, your liberation isn't real liberation. You're not really liberated yet. Because the understanding of reality that you have is not correct. It's not the deepest. So if you really want to gain liberation, this is the way. 
Obviously, the others said the same thing about Buddhism. They're correct. The Buddha argued with logic. Later Indian Buddhist masters argued with logic and argued very convincingly. And this whole issue of rebirth becomes very crucial in terms of making sense of the teachings of karma because the results of our behavior don't necessarily ripen in this lifetime. In fact, most of them don't. This becomes, of course, a very difficult point. Doesn't Why should I follow Buddhist ethics? I could cheat and so on and get away with it. But one has to really understand rebirth in order to really deal with karma and to understand that, you really have to understand the whole principle of cause and effect. I make a difference between the real thing Dharma and Dharma light, like the real thing Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola light. And the light version is the version without rebirth. Just sort of be kind and helpful and all the teachings of Buddhism in terms of the disturbing emotions and the methods for dealing with them and so on, that you can have all of that without rebirth, without liberation, without all of that, but that's not the real thing Buddhism. So the question becomes, if we reduce Buddhism to another form of psychology, is that still Buddhism? But then again, as I say, if you call it Dharma light, and if that's what you want, then fine, that's okay. But don't confuse it with the actual Dharma teachings, the real thing Dharma, which is with rebirth and liberation and enlightenment and karma, which are all part of Indian culture. <laughs> but ethical discipline becomes a little bit difficult in Dharma light. Because, again, one might not see the results or experience the results of one's destructive behavior. I don't know if you get away with it and never get caught, for example. Yeah, a very interesting question comes up. Could we substitute, instead of working for improving my own future lives, thinking beyond this lifetime in terms of the effect of my behavior on future generations? Would that be okay to add into Buddhism as a substitute? for future lives. We would be more comfortable with our Western way of thinking, at least secular Western way of thinking. Now, I don't think that thinking of the effect of our behavior on future generations is contradictory to anything in Buddhism. In fact, it's quite good in terms of a consideration. Just as you could add the Chinese added filial piety to serving your parents as part of Buddhism. Nothing wrong, nothing contradictory to Buddhist principles in that. But could substitute for rebirth or just be something that's added? Buddhism always emphasizes that the effect of our behavior, the only thing that's certain is what we will experience as a result of it. It's not certain what the other person will experience. We can serve somebody a wonderful, delicious meal and they choke on it and die. So it's not certain what the result of our Actions will be on the other person. So I think one still has to honor this general principle within Buddhism that one looks at the effect of one's behavior on oneself, on the continuum of one's mental, mental continuum. So, the various aspects of Buddhist teachings taught to an Indian audience, but they seem to be universal terms of rebirth, liberation, etc., were not limited to the Indian context, but it arose in the Indian context. And to do away with it would render Buddhism into Dharma light and give have some problems in terms of the understanding of cause and effect. And what really is the aim of Buddhism? What's the aim of the path? To just improve things of this lifetime, as seen with Dharma light, or a little bit better to improve the world for future generations. So environmental concerns, global warming concerns, etc. So we have to really make clear what our aim is and what really Buddha set as his aims, regardless of the cultural context. Not the aims, but the aims for all beings. Now, we could ask, are there any characteristics, though, of the Buddhist Dharma that need to be there regardless of culture, regardless of any of these considerations, what I was referring to as the third level of something, 
a little bit more deeper, the characteristic features of Buddhism itself, not sharing in common with other traditions. And we have what's called the four hallmarks or seals of the Dharma. The full term for it is the sealing points that would allow us to label a particular view, a philosophical view, as being based on the Buddha's teaching, Buddha's words, lightning speech of the Buddha. What guarantees that something comes from the Buddha's actual speech, what he taught? And there are four points that are stated. So it's not love and compassion that makes it specifically Buddhist. It's not meditation that makes it specifically Buddhist. Not a monastic community that makes it specifically Buddhist. Or ethics, don't harm others, that's not specifically Buddhist. It all comes down to the view of reality that makes it specifically Buddhist. But that doesn't mean that we could do away with all these other things and just have the view. So we have these four points. The first one, all conditioned phenomenon or affected phenomenon are impermanent, non-static. Means that everything that is affected by causes and conditions, arises from causes and conditions, will continuously change. And some of them will come to an end, most of them will come to an end. There are a few that go on forever. But non-static here means that changes moment to moment to moment. Well, teaching impermanence is that so Buddhist? Well, I mean, the point being that most people don't even realize this. want to think that things are permanent. They're going to last forever. They're never going to change. But more relevant is that me, I change from moment to moment. I'm affected by causes and conditions, and I'm changing from moment to moment to moment. The Hindu thoughts, me, I'm permanent. But it doesn't affect me. I'm not affected by anything. That way of thinking. My body. It's affected, but not me. I might experience many, many different things, but me, I'm not changed by that. Knowledge might change, but me, I'm not changed by that. So, this whole point about all conditioned or affected phenomenon change from moment to moment. They're impermanent and non-static. That applies to me as well. As long as something arises and is affected by causes and conditions, it's going to change, and most of them will come to an end. I don't really want to go into a very deep philosophical discussion of all these points. It's already late and uh, very hot. Perhaps this isn't the proper time. But at this point, all conditioned phenomena are non-static. We have to differentiate. There's some non-static things that are changing that are degenerating, slowly, slowly coming to an end. And there are other things which don't degenerate. So, now we talk about me. Is it degenerating like the body? Is it deteriorating, falling apart? Or does the me continue? If the me is affected by causes and conditions at the end of life, and the mind as well, in terms of just knowing, the capacity to remember might deteriorate. But the capacity to know is not deteriorated. So if that's not deteriorating at the time of death, it's still affected by something, then it should change into another moment. So I want to go quite deep with this point. Second point is all tainted phenomenon are problematic, all suffering. Tainted means that they arise dependently on disturbing emotions and karma. It's back into rebirth, doesn't it? So, to explain that point elaborately would be the 12 links of dependent arising. That all our experience, everything that happens is arising because of our ignorance, basically, our unawareness of reality, which brings about the disturbing emotions, builds up karma, and so on, and generates different levels of happiness. So, pain and happiness, but then what it really generates is the continuing basis for that uncontrollably recurring rebirth. And all of that's problematic, all of that is suffering. This is specifically Buddhist. This whole mechanism of how samsara functions, how rebirth works, is all problematic, all suffering. 
And then the third point is all phenomena are devoid and lacking an impossible meter, an impossible soul. An atma is the Indian word, but an impossible one, one that couldn't possibly exist. So here we get all the Buddhist teachings on voidness, whether we're speaking of it just in terms of voidness of a self of a person or voidness of all phenomena. There are different levels of understanding this that Buddha taught, but basic teachings on voidness are totally essential for the Buddhist view. Voidness means an absence of impossible ways of existing. Things appear to exist in a certain way, but it doesn't correspond, it doesn't refer, I should say, to anything real. It's impossible. Other Indian systems, we find this in many of the Hindu systems, they say that everything is an illusion, and you have to see that it's an illusion and get to reality, like we're all one itself is equivalent to Brahma, this type of thing. But Buddha was saying that all of that's impossible. These other interpretations of what illusion is are impossible. He gave what is considered the correct view, and what is demonstrated by logic and by experience is the correct view. And the fourth point is nirvana, referring to release from samsara, is a pacification of something constructive. It's a pacification. So that's basically talking about the third noble truth, that it is stopping completely of all the causes of suffering, disturbing emotions, unawareness, karma, etc., and the suffering itself. So rebirth, uncontrollably recurring rebirth. And it's something constructive, brings happiness. So this implies that liberation is possible, and putting this together with the points that come before, what would bring liberation, and liberation from what? So we could see the Four Noble Truths, Another way of structuring what is said here in these four seals of the Dharma, these four hallmarks of the Dharma. So although we could think in terms of these four points, just in terms of this lifetime, all things that are affected by causes and conditions change, and anything that comes from confusion is going to give you problems, and there is no solid me, and if I could become free of all my problems, it would be great. This type of thing. But is that really Buddhism? That's the Dharma-like version. It's not really going deeply enough in terms of cause and effect and what really we want to get rid of. Because the problem with just positing all of this in the context of this lifetime is the whole issue of cause and effect. Because then you're going to have to have a mind and a me that at the first moment arises from no cause or a cause that is irrelevant, like just the physical substance of the appearance, and that somehow changes, 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 but then just that final moment doesn't have any effect on something else. So you have a big problem with cause and effect in terms of the mind, the mental continuum, and the me. Now, positing, beginningless, rebirth. And beginningless and endless mind. Beginnings and endless me, not this impossible me, but the me that actually does exist and function. So we have, in summary, Buddhism has certain characteristic features, four noble truths, these four sealing points, refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and gone into that, but that also, the way that it's defined in Buddhism is specific to Buddhism. We have defining characteristics. Is the existence of Buddhism established? by the power of these characteristics all by itself, independent of anything else, no, you couldn't say that. That's impossible. Point of view of voidness teachers. They have to be within a context. So there is a general context which happens to be Indian, because that was the audience that Buddha taught in, but it seems to be universal. So it has to be within a context of practices of love and compassion and concentration and meditation and other things which are a little bit less easy to swallow, like karma, rebirth, etc. That would be a context. But then there's this other level which is more superficial. 
which might have a general principle behind it, but the form is different in different cultures. So making offerings, showing respect, these sort of things can be done in many different forms. And how the monastic community supports itself, and so on. These can be in various different ways, what type of robe they wear that will distinguish them from lay people and not bring about attachment. That can be culturally dependent. And certainly the language would be culturally dependent. And things like Mount Meru and the four continents and so on, and all the various beings that inhabit the universe, well, certainly, I mean, as well as himself, the Dalai Lama has said, we don't need Mount Meru and the Abhidharma explanation of the universe. It's contradicted by science, by experience. So when you offer the universe... It could be in the form of the solar system or the planet Earth or whatever. The point is that you're offering everything. You're offering the universe. And you're thinking of more beings than just human. Some that have more suffering, some that have less suffering. In a Buddhist procession theory and how the mind works, etc., there's never a mention of the brain. But that can be brought in. There's no contradiction. So, when we ask this larger question, can we distinguish the Buddha Dharma from its Asian context, we see that this is actually quite a complex question, and one needs to analyze it in levels of what is essential, what is general, what comes from a culture like Indian, and what is superficial, and just can be changed according to culture, but follows principle. That has to be honored. Thank you. What questions might you have? Yes. So in which context do you see the pretas, the god realms, and so on? Hmm. The way that I relate to that is to look at mind and feeling. So mind is to be able to experience things. You have certain like mental holograms arising and some experiencing it or knowing of it. And one mental factor that's always present is a level of happiness or unhappiness. It's not quite the same as pleasure or pain, but it's a mental or physical happy or unhappy. And in, if we use the Buddhist term, the desire realm is also going to be pleasure, pain, physical sensation. Now, when we talk about happiness and unhappiness, or pleasure and pain, there's a huge spectrum from the most intense, horrible suffering to the most intense pleasure and happiness. Just as there is in terms of the visual spectrum, the audio sound spectrum, and so on. There's a large spectrum. Now, with sight and sound, which part of the spectrum are we able to perceive? That is dependent on the hardware of the type of body that we have. An eagle can see much better than a human eye. The dog can smell much better than a human. A human body can and can hear more than what a human can. So it is possible with these spectra that with a different type of body you would be aware of a different portion of the spectrum, larger portion. So if that's the case with sight and sound and smell and so on, then why shouldn't it also be the case with pleasure and pain, happiness and unhappiness? So with the human body, when the pain becomes too much, too intense, we fall unconscious. If the pleasure is too intense, we are driven to destroy it. Actually, if you think about an itch, an itch is actually intense pleasure. It's not painful, but if the itch becomes too much, then... Instinctively, we have to scratch it to stop it. So the mind, however, is capable of experiencing much, much more than what is limited with by our body, a human body. So by that reasoning, there can be other life forms, non-human, that can experience the whole range of suffering and pleasure. So that, of course, there are others or our own mental continuum could experience the whole spectrum. There are two ways of looking at it, of course, and Buddhism looks at it in both ways. So I think this comes into our second category uh, that we were dividing our discussion into, 
In other words, I don't think it really is relevant what the hell creatures look like and what type of torture they experience and how big the ghosts are and how long they live and stuff like that. That's coming out of Indian culture and each of the Indian systems speaks about them and gives a different size and description and so on. That, I think, is not so necessary. But what is necessary is the principle behind it, which is that the mind could experience much more suffering and much more pleasure, and that's we want to avoid both of these in order to have just the right amount that will enable us to practice the path. And to take that seriously, that, that we could be in a situation after this lifetime in which the area that we're experiencing is not a very conducive one. The area of that spectrum of pleasure, of pain, or happiness, or unhappiness. That's the principle. Form, fairly irrelevant. Yes? How much freedom actually remains in this conditioned existence? Because uh, sometimes I think that with all this uh, conditioned existence, uh, there is actually not much freedom to decide. Well, we always have choices, but what we choose will be for a reason. So the choices that we make are not based on no reason at all. But the choices that we have are restricted. You can't choose just anything. You go to a restaurant. Let's say it is a Turkish restaurant. Well, you can only choose what's on the menu. You can't choose Chinese food or Italian food. So there's a limited number of choices that you have. But what you choose, that's up to you. But whatever you choose is going to be based on a reason. You're vegetarian or you eat meat, you don't like this, you don't like that. There's a reason for what you choose. I just had this yesterday, so I don't want it again. There's always a reason for what you choose. But you have a choice. It's clear that there are causes for making a certain choice rather than another. But does this have absolute necessity that one will make that choice? That's hard to answer, because from the point of view of a Buddha, an omniscient Buddha, an omniscient Buddha knows everything, so he knows causes and effects. So in a sense, the Buddha knows what you're going to choose, but what you're going to choose hasn't happened yet, so he knows it hasn't happened yet. Now, the question is, how do we experience it? We experience it as a choice. Is it really a choice? Well, then one has to analyze what does choosing mean? What does choosing mean? It means distinguishing one thing from another, discriminating what would be more beneficial or more pleasurable than another thing. So all these variables are there. So from our side, and I think that all that we can speak about is in terms of how we experience things in life. And we experience it in terms of using our discrimination to make choices. But, you see, this gets into a very, very deep, difficult philosophical question in terms of what has not yet happened. It's not that all our choices and whatever we're going to do is already happening or happened, and Buddha sees all of that. There are things that have not yet happened, Next year has not yet happened. Tomorrow has not yet happened. Do we know that there'll be a tomorrow? Yes. Is it predetermined that there'll be tomorrow? No, that's a strange way of looking at it. But I know there'll be a tomorrow. So one has to go deeper and deeper philosophically. But it certainly isn't that everything is predetermined and we're just living out a script that somebody else wrote and decided what's going to one last question. Okay, just maybe we'll come back to the topic of uh, traditions and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, what means blessing or what is blessing? Is it a traditional stuff or is there a kind of energy that comes from mm. the holy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the question is about blessings. Is that something cultural or what's going on with blessings? So this is a very good point that you bring up. Because uh, a lot of the misunderstanding about Buddhism is due to the type of 
terminology that's used to translate the technical Buddhist terminology. And so a lot of the terminology, a portion of the terminology that's been chosen traditionally in the West has strong Christian connotations, like, for example, the word blessing. Oh, maybe I will, uh, because it's, it's about tradition, I was in Bhutan, there's a lot of very, very holy stuff for me to formulate and this and that, and everybody gets like... So she's saying that in Bhutan, everybody gets this same things from Drupa Kunle and from all sorts of various masters, and it's touched your head, and you receive a blessing. So I said, you certainly have that, but to translate it as a blessing is introducing a, a Christian concept. The term that's used in Tibetan could be translated differently. And the way that I would translate it is inspiration. Something which inspires you, which uplifts you. So then the question is, where is this coming from, this inspiration? Is it existing just by the power of the object? Is it existing just by the power of the mind of the person? Like if you put a dog's tooth, you know, the story of the dog's tooth that somebody was supposed to bring back a relic of the Buddha, they forgot, so they brought back a dog's tooth, and this inspired everybody. So where is the inspiration? From the side of the object, from the side of the mind, from the side of the person who brings it, from the side of the good story that you tell about it. And you'd have to say it arises dependently on all of this. But the fact is that people do get inspired. You get inspired from a rainbow. So is there something special about these? Is there some sort of vibration that's in it? That's a difficult question. And you would say, from a Buddhist point of view, that, for instance, if somebody has great concentration and great experience, which sort of brings everything into focus and so on, it does affect the objects around them, and it does affect the environment, like under the Bodhi tree in the Gaya. So they have these ceremonies in which all the monks get together and for a whole month they recite Om Mani Pei Mei Hum. And they have these little pills that are there and they blow on it and it gets the vibration of the Om Mani Pei Mei Hums and people take it and feel very inspired. So you could say, well, some sort of energy vibration. Sounds a little bit new age, but it's not outrageous that somehow vibration and energy can affect the alignment of the energy of an object. But, of course, if you give these things, these little pills to someone who has no respect, no anything, then it's not going to have any effect. So the inspiration also is dependent on the mind of the person. The example that's given is that even if the highest lama in the world blows on a protection string and ties it around the neck of a pig, that's going to be slaughtered. It's not going to prevent the pig from being slaughtered. So things arise dependently on many, many factors. Okay, so let's end here. Not with a blessing, but we'll end here with a... Inspiration for the dedication. Dedication, we think whatever positive force, whatever energy has been built up, we're just dealing with the energy on our mental continuum here, may go deeper and deeper, go stronger and stronger, and act as a cause for not only us, but everybody, to reach the enlightened state of a Buddha. The benefit of us all. <laughs>